0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hey, friends. Thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash bpshow. Patreon.com slash bpshow.
2: Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash thebillpressshow.
3: Good morning and welcome to the Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning, the end of yet another chaotic week in Washington. That's the only kind of week we know in Trump's Washington. The Comey memos are out. Uh, that is the big news happening overnight here in the nation's capital. Of course, former FBI director James Comey has been on his media blitz to promote His new book, A Higher Loyalty, we have seen him sit down for multiple interviews and those now infamous conversations he says he had with President Trump about the FBI's investigation into Russian meddling in the U.S. election. The memos he wrote memorializing those conversations have been released by the Justice Department. So we will be talking about those, their implications and a whole lot more here this morning with some very great guests. An all-women's show, which is the kind of show that I certainly support. Uh, Elena Schneider from Politico will be here, Elise Foley from HuffPost, and Pema Levy from Mother Jones. Uh, So really, really smart people who will help us break down everything from Trump's continuing feud with the FBI uh, and a whole lot more in terms of the action on Capitol Hill, how Republicans are feeling about the fate of uh, Robert Mueller, the special counsel, is Mike Pompeo going to be confirmed with, as the Secretary of State? We have a lot to discuss with our great team as well. That includes, of course, of course, Ray Rogers. Good morning. How are Good you? Good
4: morning. How are you, Sabrina? I'm doing well.
3: I'm doing well, too. We also have Bryn Molloy and our friend Cyprian Bolding. Uh, All here to help me keep uh, the wheels running uh, so that I don't get an angry call from Bill. Um, (laughs) Or Peter. Hey, Peter. Or Peter. You know, Peter, who claims to be watching slash listening from home. So uh, we're going to do a pop quiz with him later to see if he really paid (laughs) attention. Um, You know, Ray, obviously, we've been talking a lot about the special counsel's investigation Uh, into not just Russian interference in the U.S. election, but specifically whether or not there was collusion between the Trump campaign and Moscow. Uh, You've had a number of Republicans talk this week about how safe uh, is Mueller in his job since the president has a penchant for attacking uh, the special counsel and its work. And there are proposals to try and protect the special counsel, specifically to send a message to the president. But Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, he says he's not so sure that that legislation is necessary at this point.
1: I haven't seen clear indication yet that we needed to pass something to keep him from being removed, because I don't think that's going to happen.
3: And then he goes on to say that there's a little too much discussion around a hypothetical.
1: I'm not going to answer the hypothetical, because I don't think he's going to be removed. I think he'll be allowed to finish his job.
3: Uh, On the flip side, Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley. Uh, He has another perspective, uh, which is that Congress does, in fact, act as an oversight body. And so maybe there's a little something they could do about it.
5: In my view, that means that Congress should at least require the executive branch to issue detailed reports to Congress about the appointment, investigation and removal of special counsel. And especially in light of the work done by the bipartisan group of senators from this committee, I think that this committee should consider whether a law requiring judicial review of the removal of special counsel is appropriate
3: right what i like about this is well there's a little bit of a split clearly um among republicans on capitol hill certainly the senate as to mm-hmm. whether or not there's some action that they could take but mcconnell's thinking is well, the president's not going to sign this legislation anyway but i seem to recall when president obama was in office republicans routinely sent bills to his desk that they knew he wasn't really going to sign.
4: Oh, of course. The point is not necessarily for Trump to sign it, but more to send a unified message from the Senate that this is something that we deeply care about and that our constituents care about.
3: Yeah, and, you know, I think M- McConnell maybe doesn't want to challenge Trump because he needs his uh, signature, so I'm sure we'll get into his ambitions and a whole lot more mm-hmm. with the great Elena Schneider. All She'll All that it down coming up. With, with us for Politico. Stay tuned.
2: is the Bill Press Show.
3: Friday morning here at the Bill Press Show. Once again, I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill at the end of the week, Uh, taking you through. A whole lot of news. Uh, We're now in, it used to be New York that was called the city that never sleeps, but I'm beginning to think that Washington may have uh, overtaken uh, that title uh, since a certain someone arrived in January of (laughs) last year. Um, You know, there's been a fair amount of news overnight. Uh, We've been talking just at the top of the show about the special counsel investigation, the Comey memos um, are a critical part of that, and they were released— by the Justice Department overnight. Now this was in part in response to the Republican chairman of three uh, committees in the House, that's the Intelligence uh, Committee there, um, being one of the ones that's leading the charge and looking into uh, Russian interference in the election, but there's a fair amount of partisan breakdown in how those inquiries are being carried out on Capitol Hill, as one would expect. Uh, But the the key, I think, out of the uh, Comey memos is, that the president was very preoccupied with the allegations against his campaign, but also some of the more salacious claims uh, that were made about him cavorting with prostitutes in Russia, uh, something that has not yet been substantiated. But he asked Comey, according to these memos, to uh, investigate uh, the alleged tape uh, of him, with prostitutes in Moscow, slightly dubious to investigate a tape that doesn't exist. But uh, he also was, as we know, very concerned with the investigation to Michael Flynn, who, of course, at the time, was his national security advisor. Flynn was ultimately forced to resign for misleading the vice president over the nature of his conversations with uh, the Russian ambassador Sergei Kilsiak, and then was charged with uh, perjury, with lying to the FBI, he has since been cooperating with Robert Mueller and the special counsel team. But Trump, as we know, asked Comey to go easy on or let go, I should say, not go easy on. He asked him to let go um, the investigation into uh, Michael Flynn, which Comey said uh, he interpreted as a directive to shut down the investigation. Uh, other key lines out of these memos are the perception uh, within the White House of the role of the FBI and, and its independence, uh, Trump is also has also frequently criticized Andrew McCabe, who was Comey's deputy and uh, was fired uh, just last month, uh, in part because McCabe's wife uh, ran uh, for a seat in the Virginia state legislature as a Democrat. And uh, no, there's no, of course, rules barring in. F- FBI's sp- official spouse from seeking public office. Uh, but um, Comey also talks about how he had to tell the White House more than once that any questions pertaining to the investigation uh, should be asked using the proper channels. So making clear that he didn't find it appropriate to be summoned to the White House and to be asked uh, specific questions about the investigation that he was overseeing, which involved certain officials in the white house um comey also was on jake tapper's show yesterday and he was discussing some of the more controversial aspects of his book tour um whether or not he can say that there actually has been collusion i think we'll have that for you uh, shortly but he said that it's possible that um that the campaign may have colluded with moscow
2: possible cooperation between Americans and the Russian effort to influence our, our election what you're asking about now is why did I say what I said when people asked me whether I thought it was possible that the Russians had derogatory information on President Trump I think it's unlikely but I think it's possible but isn't that
1: construct unfair to President Trump in a way because the question was if President Trump was compromised by the Russians you say it's possible I don't think it's likely but it's possible I mean it's possible there's life on other planets we don't know For you, somebody like you, with your reputation, um, saying it's possible isn't. I mean, it's also possible that it's not true. Isn't that another way you could look at the same question?
2: Sure, but I'm not looking to the stars saying there might be green men out there. There's a reason I say it's possible.
3: There's a reason Comey says it's possible. Now, I think Jake Tapper did a good job pushing back and saying, "Look, there's been a great deal of speculation. The public has not seen evidence of." collusion having actually taken place between the campaign and Moscow. They've seen conversations that suggest a possible, to borrow a word from James Comey, a possible intent to collude. Certainly Don Jr. uh, having released those emails where in that infamous June 2016 meeting with the Russians, he was willing to accept incriminating information about Hillary Clinton. And he was told of an effort by the Russian government to help his father's campaign. But James Comey, Ray, is not talking about this as a mere spectator. He is someone who was, until he was dismissed last year, overseeing this investigation. So he's coming from a place with some degree of knowledge.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just before... That question that we just played now Tapper was like well as the FBI director and Comey clarifies and says now I was the FBI director and so basically I'm in a tricky spot because I know more than I can let on mm-hmm. but now I can also comment as no longer being a part of the FBI and so he does know more than he lets on but of course it's like th- his hands are still tied in what he can mm-hmm. tell the general public
3: And this is part of why it's been difficult for him, I think, to thread this needle. This is an ongoing investigation. He's promoting a book. He clearly has a story to tell. He has invited criticism. Some people might say the criticism is fair, at least insofar as... The timing um, makes it even more difficult for him to make assertions, but then not be able to or be limited in how much he can back up those assertions. He's declined, of course, as one would expect, to discuss any interactions he's had with the special counsel team. Um, But it's also quite clear that his focus here is on the manner in which he was fired and the potential obstruction of justice. Uh, which he also said was possible, <laughs> uh, but that's because Robert Mueller is currently looking, looking into whether into it. or not exactly. the White House, specifically the president, sought to obstruct justice.
4: Yes, it's a very sensitive topic, and I think that, well, at least here on the BP show, we have been very critical of Comey, saying that he's not a hero, even though that's sort of how he's being portrayed here, but... Not here, as in a lot of people are sort of saying, like, oh, he's this huge, like, pillar of hope and he's doing (laughs) so much to help us. But it's like, please do remember that he did conveniently play politics by releasing a letter to Congress about Hillary Clinton. And so there are lots of conflicting motives here and uh, very sensitive information.
3: Right. I think there is an effort here to absolve himself of uh, political wrongdoing and it's been striking because one thing he has conceded in these interviews, all while saying that he was not making political calculations, that he was acting out of uh, how he viewed his responsibility as the director of the FBI, he has nonetheless conceded that, well, when I sent that letter, the infamous October letter 11 days before the election that suggested I might be reopening the case um, into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server as secretary of state, I was operating in a world where Hillary Clinton was going to be president. Um, If you're operating in a world where Hillary Clinton is going to be president, you are, by definition, making somewhat of a political calculation because you are saying, how will people look back on me and the FBI if they find out after she is elected Mm -hmm. that we had come by a new stash of previously unreported emails? I also think, though, that then he doesn't answer the question that a lot of people within the clinton world had about why there was a need to release that letter without having first reviewed the emails right in the end of course the fbi at the request of the clinton campaign given the election was all of less than two weeks away yep. um they carried out a very uh, swift review of the emails within days they had to expedite a review only to conclude that they were all duplicates that there was Nothing uh, specific that that could be damaging that hadn't already been discussed. So why not do the review first and then release the letter? I don't think he's actually been able to really answer that question.
4: I don't think that he has either. And I think that it's because it comes down to the fact that he was playing politics like Mm -hmm. it was himself trying to preserve his own image. And that's what I think it's really about. Right. And And there's
3: no eloquent way to say that. There's no eloquent way to say it. And and he talks a bit about how he is indeed reviled by both the Trump partisans and the Clinton partisans. And at the end of the day, I don't think that anything he says while he's out there on this book tour uh, would satisfy either of those two camps. But there's a very big distinction between... how his decisions are being interpreted by those two camps it's i don't i think it's it's not appropriate to equate them as though the criticism that the clinton campaign uh, had is the same as the criticism that the trump supporters have which is um of course the the distinction of him having been fired by the sitting president as he was overseeing an investigation mm-hmm. that may involve a sitting president so it's also another part of this that hasn't really, I think, been set, been broken down in great detail. That that people will will disagree with Comey's conduct with how he's made mm-hmm. some of these decisions, but um, the substance of his allegations against Trump that that those do not change no matter what you think of how he's conducted himself, no matter what you think of this book tour, and that it, and the the substance of his allegations against Trump are very different from. You know, the the October letter and, and and the substance of his issues with the Clinton mm-hmm. campaign, because in one of these cases, one of them involves potential <laughs> obstruction of justice. One of them does not because that person was never president. Some what do you argue. mean, Sabrina? Lock her up. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we don't really know. Well, that's the other thing. We don't know what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had been elected president. Um, and look, every every president gets to choose his or her own. Um, FBI director, so one would imagine that Hillary Clinton would probably have appointed a new FBI director, but not because he was investigating, actively investigating her. Uh, right. Which, but because, you know, there was obviously a great deal of acrimony. It probably would have been difficult for them to forge an appropriate relationship after everything that had transpired. And in the also, campaign. as you
4: mentioned, it's just status quo, you know, it's sort of like you come in and you appoint new people. That's just normal. But the way that Trump did it, of course, is not normal, as everything about his presidency has been.
3: It, it, yes. I, I, and I think that one of the things that he talked to uh Comey about, which was also striking, and I know why, I know why he has to be very cautious in what he says, Uh, but what Comey told Jake Tapper on CNN, uh, when asked if the country would have been better off if Hillary Clinton were president, he said, well, I can't, you know, I don't know, I can't Can't speculate. Yeah, he can't answer what what, what that world would have looked like. All while he was, all while he is uh, going across the country, sitting down for these high-profile interviews, saying that this president is morally unfit to be in office. Right. So, uh, and so, I know that he, it's difficult because if he says that yes, uh, we would be better off if Hillary Clinton were president, then of course, a lot of the Trump supporters would say. You know, there it is. Yeah, exactly. The, there it is. The, the whole is, purpose bias. of this is, is exactly um, to, to undermine the president, to take him down. And this is indicative, indicative of bias. But there might be a better way to to thread that needle than on the one hand saying that the person who is currently in office is morally unfit, reprehensible, uh, makes derogatory statements about women and equiv- equivocates on Charlottesville. But then when you're asked about his former opponent who has not come near doing any of those uh, things, you say, well, I don't really know what she would have been like.
4: Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think that he is trying to have it both ways, and that's something that he did previously. And I think that he's still trying to have it both ways, to protect his own ego, essentially. And I think that a lot of what he says doesn't have much substance because he sort of says both sides.
3: Right. And so it's almost like this PR tour reinforces why people were so frustrated with him.
4: To begin first, with. In the exactly. first place.
3: Um, And I do think uh, maybe the book um, could have perhaps been now this investigation could go on for another few years. We don't really know. But perhaps this book could have been published after the investigation or at a point in time where he won't be so constrained in what he can say. Uh, In some ways, one could say it does distract from his core message because he's giving a lot of ammunition to uh, people to criticize him. Um, and I think he's now tried to shy away from uh, some of the pettier uh, comments that he made in that initial interview with uh, George Stephanopoulos, the big sit down uh, last Sunday about Trump's hair and his tan and his hands mm-hmm. and things that are not going to help you when you're out there saying, I'm just here to uphold the integrity of the FBI. Right. It
4: cheapens the core message to go after these frivolous things about Trump.
3: Yes. He did, but- however, say that he's concerned about Robert Mueller. Um he, he, we were playing those clips from Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley about the competing views um, as to whether or not um, we, Mueller should be protected. I think we have uh, Comey talking about what the implications would be uh, if the president were to dismiss uh, Mueller. Um, but we, we also have the president talking about how. Yeah.
4: They, so here's Comey talking about what mm-hmm. happens if um, Mueller is fired.
5: What will it mean if President Trump tries to fire Robert Mueller?
2: It would, I hope, set off alarm bells that this is his most serious attack yet on the rule of law.
3: And then Trump, of course, uh, when his joint press conference with the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, could not avoid questions about uh, the Russia investigation, specifically whether or not he has concluded that it would not be in his interests, to fire either Robert Mueller or Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein.
5: They've been saying, I'm going to get rid of them for the last three months, four months, five months, and uh, they're still here. So we want to get the investigation over with, done with, put it behind us.
3: So not really ruling it out. And the question specifically was to the president, if he has concluded that he is not going to fire Rosenstein or Mueller. There has been a lot of speculation that the White House has set its sights on Rosenstein in particular, sort of laying the groundwork to dismiss him. Um, And, you know, he said people have been speculating about this for months and they're still there, which is his way of saying a lot of this is just chatter. It's, It's gossip, but clearly i haven't done anything yet Yet. (laughs) subtext yeah subtext is the huge looming yet exactly which is keeping the option on the table he is not willing to explicitly take it off the table uh, which is precisely why um and something that we might get into with elena schneider the the role of congress might be uh to send a signal to the president i i think The other striking piece of this is that Rudy Giuliani uh, has now joined the president's legal team. To borrow a line from Peter, that goblin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The answer to Trump's problems, maybe not. But Rudy Giuliani is in this small group of people. Maybe it's only just Rudy Giuliani because of, but he <laughs> he is obviously also a New Yorker and happens to have a long standing relationship with Trump, but also has long known Robert Mueller. So his take is I know both of these guys. We just need to sit down in a and room And wrap it up. And hash us out and yeah. wrap it up. But then that was the the the, the striking thing about what he said was you have the president not willing to take off the table firing Mueller, and then you have Rudy Giuliani coming in, joining the legal a legal team that has really struggled to attract uh, lawyers or to uh, pe- retain <laughs> or to retain lawyers, uh, and, and saying, "No, no, no, no. Mueller should be allowed to conclude his investigation. Keyword: conclude. Like, mm-hmm. let's 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 get a move on. Mm-hmm. It's time to to bring this to an end. Which is which is not really a, sending a message that you want someone to continue." Uh, to have l- the license to investigate in whatever way is warranted, whatever time is needed.
4: Not at all. And it also contradicts, again, Trump during that same meeting with um, Shinzo Abe, where he basically says, like, look, we've cooperated. We've handed over everything that they've asked for, dot, dot, dot. And hopefully it all ends soon. I think we we, yeah, have, we have that.
3: We have that. So uh, as usual, this is this is the president's take on on the investigation. Maybe he's following a different investigation than the rest of us. <laughs>
5: I believe we've given them 1.4 million pages of documents, if you can believe this, and haven't used, that I know of, or for the most part, presidential powers or privilege. So we are hopefully coming to the end.
3: So hopefully coming to the end. This is something that the president and his team have been saying for a couple months now. They're hopefully coming to the end. We've been cooperating. But the one thing that they haven't done is put the president in front of the special counsel. And so one could presume that the special counsel cannot conclude its investigation until it interviews a key witness, and that witness happens to be the candidate who was at the top of the ticket (laughs) um, and the boss of all of these people— Um, The glue,
4: so to speak, that holds all of these other
3: (laughs) spokes together. The glue who holds together all of these people who, as we know, did at least have contacts with the Russians. And there was a clear pattern established where Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman, um, Michael Flynn, of course, who went on to be the national security advisor, George Papadopoulos, former foreign policy advisor, Carter Page, informal former foreign policy advisor general showboat but someone who was affiliated with the campaign a number of people bill gates who is paul manafort's deputy uh who have who have also not just uh had had contact with the russians but have been indicted by the fbi in uh Mm -hmm. relation to this investigation so you would think that they would want to sit down with the with uh the person who was at the uh, at the top of it all and say did you know anything? What did you know? Did you see anything? What did you see? And then and then, then maybe they could get some of their uh, work done. And also, they are looking into potential destruction of justice by President Trump. So they may have to talk to President Trump. Um, Rudy Giuliani, of course, has not promised an interview, but he seems to think that maybe if they all just get in a room, they can, they can, they can work it out. Uh, but I think one thing that's interesting about Rudy Giuliani is he is a former prosecutor, very aggressive uh, but he is also a very loyal supporter of Trump's and the last decade plus couple decades he's really just been a politician so if anything it almost suggests that team Trump is not really as concerned with the legal questions that linger over this investigation but more so from a PR perspective how do we win uh, this fight in the court of public opinion. And that's where someone like Rudy Giuliani, frequent commentator on Fox News and, and other networks, that's where he comes in. I mean, this this is not really a move to to bring about, um, I think, any seriousness to the, the legal team so much it is as it is to bring in a seasoned politician who can help them navigate a fight that they are quite clearly losing.
4: A seasoned politician and also again, a close friend. I think this is very Trumpian in that he keeps his circle tight um, and he really only likes to deal with people that he can trust, um, which, I mean, of course, everybody does, but there's a certain amount of
3: loyalty at mm-hmm. play here. Right, and he he wants people he can trust. A lot of this is about pacifying the president. Um, he, if, as we as we were discussing his conversations with Comey, He's clearly been so fixated on this investigation mm-hmm. that it has clouded uh, much of his presidency. Really, outside tax reform, you can't really think of anything from his agenda uh, that has been accomplished in any meaning in terms of any meaningful big, big, big item legislation. Uh, immigration is something that we'll get into with Elise Foley uh, mm-hmm. later in the program. Uh, he was making, of course, uh, he was he paid a, a visit yesterday to a navy base where he talked about um drug trafficking and 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 why we need a wall um in fact we have it for you
5: drugs are flowing into our country we need border protection we need the wall we have to have the wall the democrats don't want to approve a wall because they think it's good politically but it's not
3: so they think it's good politically democrats the wall but they are but they're not going to or they don't think it's good politically. That's why they're going, they're not going to approve um, the wall. Uh, you know, there was a time when we were sitting here talking about whether or not he could re- get a deal on immigration, um, and it almost seems like another life because all we've talked about since is more more revelations. Mm-hmm. James Comey, of course, coming out swinging, and um, and really, frankly, the the ups and downs in, in the president's legal. Uh, woes, which will, which will, we didn't even, even talk yet about Michael Cohen. We haven't
4: even gotten we haven't into even any gotten of even
3: gotten to Michael Cohen, but
4: more to come. Let's check in with the chat room. We have lots of people talking this morning. Um, you can, of course, find us on youtube.com/slash the Bill Press Show, where there's an active um, chat community every morning. We have Miriam. Weighing in, saying Comey's remarks about Trump's appearance were gratuitous. If he had had a good editor, they would have been cut. Also, where are the Trump kids in all of this? Have they put in? Have they been put in cold storage?
3: <laughs> what happened to the Trump kids? I, I feel don't know. Like... They're
4: playing a very sly role in all of this. I feel like they just snuck up the back.
3: This is like that GIF of Homer Simpson backing away into the bushes. Yes, which is the most millennial reference. Um, that you you might get we'll
4: throw another one in you know the one where there's a dog sitting in a room that's burning and it's just saying like everything is fine
3: yes (laughs) everything's fine everything is fine um everything is certainly fine here on this friday morning because i get to sit here and uh, talk to uh great people and 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 hopefully get a lot more feedback from from those of you who are in the chat room so do keep the conversation going we'll be back after a short break and stay tuned to the bill press show
2: Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show.
3: Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning. And the president of the United States is up and about, tweeting, as one has come to expect, uh, first thing in the morning. (laughs) And we've been talking a great deal about James Comey and the leaked, or not leaked, the memos that have been released about his conversations with the president, of course, he has been on this book tour, and it looks like he's also on the president's mind as well. Uh, president Trump tweeting, So, General Michael Flynn's life can be totally destroyed, while shady James Comey can leak and lie and make lots of money from a third-rate book that should never have been written. Is this really the way life in America is supposed to work? I don't think so. So, interestingly... Trump's still defending Michael Flynn, who at this point has not only been indicted, but he has pleaded guilty to perjury and he is cooperating with the special counsel. Maybe the president is trying to send Flynn a message to hang in there because if he still expresses sympathy for him, it does imply maybe Flynn would get a pardon. That's something that we've also discussed uh, increasingly uh, after the pardon of Scooter Libby, of course, by the president. That was uh, Dick Cheney's former chief of staff. Joining us in studio now uh, is Elena Schneider, campaign reporter for Politico, who will obviously help us break down a great deal of the political news this week. Uh, good morning. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
3: Good, good. Um, I, I I know that you cover Congress, and so um, <laughs> a lot of the Comey and, and Russia back and forth um, is something that lawmakers there have tried to avoid. But how steadily, are they yes. steadily? Yes, <laughs> How are they responding? If to Comey's book tour, have you? I mean, he's, he's been out there on the airwaves. Have you heard anything from them about uh, the allegations that he's made against the president?
0: Well, I think if you think about the, uh, the Democrats who are running for office right now, so people who don't mind that Comey is out there uh, stirring up some of this, this is obviously getting talked about a lot on the, on the campaign trail in the primaries. That's mm. an important difference. So Democrats are happy to talk about Trump and Comey uh, in the primary sense because in that place, that's where they do actually need to show that they're going to be, quote-unquote, standing up to Trump, that uh, resistance to Trump is a real key issue for getting through those primaries because mm-hmm. those are the sort of voters who care about that. Um, in the general, we can expect them to try and avoid uh, talking about it quite as much uh, on the member and Republican side I mean you can you can guess you've tried you know you can remember trying to get them to what he said you know on the trail whenever whenever he would do something uh, more controversial back in 2016 and how unwilling people wanted to to talk about it and I think there's still that sort of steady avoidance of you know that's not my issue mm. um, has generally been been the rule of thumb
3: it's It's interesting because, We spent so much time talking about this here in Washington. We spent the whole top of the show uh, discussing the memos and this continued and escalating war between Trump and the FBI. Is this an issue that is proving to be salient among voters?
0: I think it's something that's certainly salient in the sense that it's animating them to give. It's animating people to pay attention. I mean, one of the things that um, we should talk a little bit more about is it. just the fundraising aspect right now. Is that we just finished the first quarter of 2018 looking at how much these candidates were able to raise, and 43 Republican incumbents were outraised by their Democratic components. And it's not because the Republican incumbents aren't raising money, they are, but it's not enough, and it's not enough to compete with the Democratic donors who have been so animated and infuriated by what they're seeing uh, coming out of, you know, either be it, you know, they just finished reading Comey's book and they feel, you know, animated to go donate or any myriad of, of the tweets that Trump puts out. Um, All of that serves to get people to want to pay attention and want to see, you know, new people in Congress. And that that um, so it certainly in that sense is materializing on the trail Mm. uh, and materializing for voters, whether or not that changes swing voters minds or independent voters minds. I think the chaos out of Washington. We have heard, at least in special elections, when I've talked to voters uh, ahead of special elections in Pennsylvania, ahead of the special election in Arizona next Tuesday, that the chaos is something that they care about and are concerned about, but maybe less so sort of the Russia investigation is sort of a nebulous, like, oh, I don't really totally understand what's going on there, that people aren't necessarily following the day-to-day. It's more just the general feeling of chaos that voters, that swing voters might care about.
3: There's obviously been... um a wave of retirements uh, right. among incumbent Republicans. Uh, ha- in what ways has that uh, shifted the dynamics of these midterms? And what impact, in particular, does it have on Republicans that House Speaker Paul Ryan has chosen not to seek reelection?
0: Well, let's start with the with Speaker Ryan. Um, I think that there was a real sense after he decided to re, you know to announce not only that he was going to, there was a lot of expectation that he wasn't necessarily going to uh, survive much longer. Politico wrote a, a great piece back in December about this. There was a, plenty of expectation he wouldn't stay on. But what's striking is that his decision to not only uh, to not run for re-election this cycle and to announce this far ahead of time that he was. Be- that he was bowing out and for um, nobody would really say it publicly uh, or not many would people would say it publicly at least members wouldn't say it publicly but privately there was obviously this feeling of like well if he's not even going to stick around why should I right. and um, there's not a lot of time left we were already past a lot of these filing deadlines there wasn't a lot of wiggle room left for members to uh, to ultimately decide to pull out themselves so we saw uh, Florida congressman Dennis Ross decide to retire this a uh, couple hours afterwards but otherwise mm-hmm. it's been pretty quiet
3: yeah Charlie Dent being Do- one of it well of course all. yeah
0: but so before Paul Ryan though decided to announce retiring there was a slew of members who chose to do it. and in fact we're at pretty historic rates of people deciding to retire comparing to previous cycles. And that's you know not atypical in the first uh, midterm year for a new party in power. Uh, this is always usually going to be a historically difficult cycle for whoever's in power. But that being said, there are a slew of, you know, of these what they would call themselves probably moderate Republicans who have decided to not run for reelection because of the self-awareness that their races are going to be tougher than ever. Mm. So thinking... Daryl Issa and Ed Royce, two members in Southern California. Uh, Charlie Dent, um, Dave Reichert in, uh, in in upstate Washington. Um, so all of these members who who know that they've got a tough road ahead of them and are opting out, and that really makes it a lot harder for Republicans to hold on to those seats because it forces them to spend more money to elevate those first-time candidates.
3: And as you as you know, it's difficult for Republicans because they have to walk this fine line where. During the course of the primary, they almost have to hug Trump as closely Trump, as possible be as close yeah. to him as possible. And then they have to be very clear about their disagreements with him in order to survive a general. But uh, and insofar as you've talked about Democrats having this fundraising advantage mm-hmm. and a base that has been activated and mobilized. Is it going to be enough for Democrats to frame this election as a referendum on the president? And what message do have they established if, beyond just you know tying a lot of Republicans
0: to Trump and his uh, low favorability? That's a great question, and I'm still trying to figure it out. And that's maybe <laughs> part of the problem, right? So there is certainly an element of opposition that's going to work, that people do want to vote against Trump, and that is going to be an animating force in 2018. The question is, is that enough? And I don't know if there's, you know, if you think back to 2010, it wasn't just uh, dislike of Obama. It was this promise to roll back regulations um, and to stop uh, these, you know, sort of progressive things that he was doing for uh, 2006. It wasn't just frustration with President Bush himself, but also the war, stopping the war in Iraq. So. There is an element of needing of of Democrats needing to figure out what is that next step that they want to run on in some sort of a positive way of not just we're against this, but also we're for something. And, you know, you ask Chairman Lujan, uh, chairman of the DCCC, uh, which is uh, charged with electing House Democrats. And he'll give you, you know, he'll say, well, we we do have a message and he'll give you like eight different things um, that, that Democrats are running on. And, and sort of that that plethora of messages isn't they I feel like they may need to narrow. They may need to start picking some. And, and I would also think that they would argue that the it's up to sort of the individual candidates in those districts to figure out what the local issues are that people really particularly care about. Mm. That's going to get them across. Um and maybe that's a good thing that the national, national messaging isn't come from coming from Washington, that in fact, maybe this is going to be more of a trickle up, that it's going to come from the districts themselves to right. figure it out. Local. Right. But we haven't seen yet in what ways that actually is going to manifest itself.
3: I mean, for Republicans, one would imagine that their main prerogative is to talk about tax reform, mm-hmm. which well, is, of course, the single major legislative accomplishment uh, that they have had, at least insofar as their agenda is concerned. Um, how is it playing out of course when the bill was passed at the time the polling was showing a great deal of unpopularity around the tax bill some of those numbers have changed and is that proving to be um, a driving force for
0: people to turn to show up at the polls they're trying really really hard to make it that way so Congressional Leadership Fund which is uh, the super PAC that's aligned with Speaker Ryan the ads group that's aligned with Speaker Ryan is doing is spending some north of 30 million dollars on just issue advocacy, so not on a specific candidate, but on pushing tax reform as a positive message. That's a lot of money to be put behind one policy, and we've seen some of that. Uh, we've seen some of that, you know, change and help them. So one thing that Republicans point to is the generic ballot. That that's tightened in the last couple of months, uh, as evidence that you know the economic message is slow, but maybe it's starting to seep in a little bit. But then the, the the problem they run into is they still they have President Trump who um, who decided to start tweeting about a tariff war and uh, started to escalate tariffs on China and then China is, is re- responding in kind and that hits farmers and right at the Trump base of people who voted for and, and and support Trump's agenda that that's um you know they were hoping to get them excited about tax reform and instead they're getting hit by tariffs so uh, it's sort of a it's there's a trouble of having of being able to stay on message. Trump should be talking about tax cuts and tax reform every single day, and he isn't. Um, so it's it's they're not having they don't have the greatest messengers. Let's put it that way uh, from from the leadership and at the very top of their party. Yes,
3: in fact, somewhere sandwiched between Trump's tweet storm this morning <laughs> was one tweet about, about tax reform about taxes, but he said. He did not he didn't talk so much about the benefits of mm-hmm. tax for themselves. He said Nancy Pelosi is going absolutely crazy about the big tax cuts given to the American people by the Republicans. Got not one Democrat vote. Here is a choice: they want to end them and raise your taxes substantially. Republicans are working on making them permanent and more cuts. So
0: look, okay, may, so maybe a little on more message. on message this morning than I than we expected.
3: But that, but this was of course after talking about shady James Comey. And then he moved on to OPEC with record amounts of oil all over the place, <laughs> including the fully loaded ships at sea. Oil prices are artificially very high, no good, and will not be accepted. So <laughs> there's a lot on his mind.
0: Right, exactly. He so also talked about he's very
3: honored that he's been invited to speak somewhere. So there's a lot going on this morning.
0: So it's not just <laughs> instead of like three or four tw- tweets focused on tax reform, it's one about here, one about Comey, what, you know, and, and pick pick your... You know, pick your flavor yeah. for
3: what you care about. Choose your own adventure. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so so I'm I'm you know I'm curious though, uh,
3: over on Capitol Hill, uh, because Republicans they do the only the only real issue that they can and at least run on in the in this moment is tax reform. Is there Well, a- they would
0: say they could run on tax reform and making sure that Nancy Pelosi's not Speaker. Ah, does that
3: does that motivate people? <laughs> I mean, I that, I know that they're I know that Nancy Pelosi. Or Chuck and Nancy, as, right. as uh, Trump likes to call them, and it's taken off. But Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, sure, they are looked at among Republican primary voters as um, you know these liberal icons who there are are the antithesis of everything that conservatives believe mm-hmm. uh, that Washington should be. But is that you know ensuring that Nancy Pelosi is not Speaker of the House is that enough to motivate people?
0: We've got some conflicting messages or evidence coming out of the special election. So thinking back to Georgia, which was this time last year, um, April and May and June of last year, when uh, we heard nothing but, you know, if you elect John Ossoff, you're going to get Nancy Pelosi back. And, and that was a race in which this is, you know, exactly where your Democrats want to make headway, which is suburban uh, well-educated, affluent parts of the country where they feel like are going to be totally stylistically opposed to Donald Trump and are going to, you know, and are are very concerned about where the country is going right now. Those are the places where they want to where they need to run up the score. And that message worked there. Um, people sort of went back to their camps and decided, OK, yeah, I don't actually want Nancy Pelosi. And I did hear that from a lot of voters. And it was something that Republicans believe worked in contrast um, we saw Connor Lamb and granted, he took a totally different tact about it, you know, openly said in. Um, so this is the Democrat who ran in southwestern Pennsylvania and won just a couple of months ago. Um, he very specifically said, I'm not supporting Nancy Pelosi. We need change in both parties. And um, and it was a much steeper hill to climb. And he was actually able to hold on to it. So I think that it it you know, there was a huge time gap there. There may be a difference in people's minds of like, okay, maybe I don't particularly like Nancy Pelosi, but I so dislike what the Republicans are doing. or I'm so concerned about what's happening in Congress and with the White House that, you know, I I care more about having a check and balance than worried about Nancy Pelosi being in charge. Um, That 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 attack might be losing some of its, uh, some of its power, potency. Um, but I do think for for traditional sort of Republicans who are potentially considering, who are who are upset by the White House, considering other options, may get scared back into their corners mm. by that prospect. Uh,
3: another uh, headline uh, out of today is that it is the anniversary of the 1999 massacre at Columbine, and mm-hmm. there is another walkouts scheduled for today uh, at schools across the country. And I bring that up because we have been, uh, we have looked a lot at Parkland and the aftermath of, of that particular shooting on February 14th. We had the uh, March for our lives where I mean, you had hundreds of thousands of people descend uh, upon Washington and March across the country. Um, there hasn't been any uh, significant, Action related to guns uh, on right. Capitol Hill, and the omnibus strength it had a measure that strengthened right. the existing background check system, but no new restrictions or laws. And a big part of having said that, the message or the rallying cry after Parkland was to make this an issue at the ballot box to 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 put this on the ballot um and 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 counter the NRA, which has been able to. Uh, put guns at the top of uh, the ticket for a lot of the their supporters. Have you seen any of the calculus shifting or have you seen guns factoring into any of these uh, midterm elect races that you've focused on?
0: I think they are. I think whether or not it turns out to be a top issue for voters is what's still uh – still to be determined but I, I think about Barbara Comstock who's right across the river here who's somebody who has been named um, who got brought up a lot right after Parkland because she's one of the Congress you know members of Congress who's received the most funding from mm. the NRA and certainly in her district um which is one that's you know trending much bluer she's obviously a pretty moderate Republican down the road is very you know s- strong congresswoman and that she's a she's a tough uh, tough opponent for Democrats to take out but I think in in that in that part of the country where, again, it's suburban, well-educated, um, people do uh, seem to be very concerned about that as a top issue for school safety, that she's one of those people because of sort of her uh, connection to the NRA that that – and I know you know based on conversations with the primary opponents that they want to make that a central issue. Whether or not that becomes a broader national conversation in a whole host of different races um, beyond uh, – places where the nra maybe has really focused in the past or places in florida um because they were so directly impacted by it it's it's not clear as of yet there was a ton of energy there was a ton of uh momentum uh after the march for our lives um and certainly i think that it's activated people but is it something that's going to necessarily uh be the deciding vote for a swing voter it's not clear yet right and and certainly it's increasingly split along party
3: lines um there are still a, hand, a handful of pro-gun Democrats and who hail from more conservative states, but um, you're know, at least supporting something like background checks has become more of a litmus test for Democrats. Right. Um, and I was curious if Republicans, because they control both chambers of Congress, and these kids said they were targeting Republicans in part because they are a lot more supportive of the NRA and a lot more opposed to new uh, restrictions on firearms. Have Republicans changed the way that they've been talking
0: about guns in any meaningful way? I mean, I think about Senator Rubio and the way that he approached some of the criticism, the intense criticism that he received um, after after Parkland, and I'm not remembering now off the top of my head where he he made some movement, but he did make some changes where he was saying, you know, I'd be willing to reconsider some of these tighter restrictions on, I think, on high-capacity magazines mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. Um, but beyond Florida, those members who are being really sort of held over the fire right after Parkland, I don't think in any meaningful way that members have really shifted. At this point, because it's not so much... Uh, I would argue about the money that the NRA gives them, but it's about the primary voters and the possible primary challengers they would have to contend with if they decided to really move on the Second Amendment.
3: Yes, and I I recall uh, Marco Rubio has introduced uh, gun uh, restraining order legislation, or bill, I should say, and that enables law enforcement and family members to try and uh, file um, effectively a restraining order that would bar... Someone who um, is, is that the red flag is the red flag, yeah, bill. So, yeah. so, so someone who is considered to be a threat to others or themselves, they would have a process to be able to prevent that person from obtaining a firearm or to, re- right. to remove a firearm. And, from that and to possession. be fair,
0: I'm realizing now that you know Comstock is somebody who has mentioned to me in the past that that's something that she would be open to considering. So maybe red flag is a place where, uh, based on what was seen out of Parkland, how sort of egregious that was, the the reaction to or the inability to do something about him. Uh, to keep him from getting guns, that might be a place that they would move on. But is that enough for a Democratic voter? Uh, you know, it seems unlikely. Mm.
3: President Trump, um, he's occasionally shown up on the campaign trail, um, although oftentimes he spends a lot of that time talking about himself. Inevitably, um, do Republicans want him <laughs> there? Do they not want him there? Do do we have we heard much about how much we expect? to see him uh, traveling across the country uh, to stump for some of the incumbent Republicans?
0: Certainly none of them are gonna say publicly that they don't want the president (laughs) on the trail with them. Privately, there is certainly acknowledgement amongst uh, members and amongst uh, uh, consultants that I speak with that they uh, would be hesitant to invite him into any place that's not a pretty deep red district. Um, I'm thinking about the way that Karen Handel, again, going back to these special elections, is sort of evidence of what we can expect Karen Handel down in Georgia, who won that special election last year, uh, didn't have any public events with the president. She only had a private fundraiser event with him and the vice president at two different times. Those were not the surrogates that she chose to have on the trail with her in a place where uh, he's not particularly popular. So that makes sense. Um But in Pennsylvania, where Trump won by 20 points, Rick Saccone had just about every single White House leader you could possibly have come and support him, along with two visits from the president and a rally in that final weekend. And the feedback that I remember hearing from the Saccone campaign and from and from Republicans in Pennsylvania was that that did actually help boost turnout a little bit. Um, and so there are going to be places like that where people are going to want Trump to be there to help support them. And I should also note that in the Senate primaries, every single Republican is hoping for that Trump tweet like Marsha Blackburn uh, got uh, in support of uh, endorsing their candidacies. Mm.
3: A striking um, package yesterday on CNN, but, um, and, and somewhat related, I think, was uh, many Republicans on Capitol Hill refusing to say whether or not they would support this president for re-election in 2020. Right. Um, that's something that you could check out online if you haven't uh, seen it, but uh, I don't recall... Now, granted, of course, it's easy to say we don't really... You know, we're focused on our, ourselves or this line that you were alluding to. We're focused on our own races and right. our own our, our It's own their fallback. It's yeah. fallback. But I don't recall the you know, um, pres- members of a president's party refusing to explicitly say that they would support his reelection campaign. Um, and, I, and, I, and, and, what, and so in some ways, I guess this gets back to uh, the the challenge before Republicans is mm-hmm. to, to try and repeat what they did in 2016, where they thread the needle in, in a way that is not angering the base um, and suppressing turnout, but is also not... V- making frame, making themselves seem uh, as though they would potentially too be aligned. too closely aligned to the president.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, as you say, it's a really important needle that they need to thread. And it's a little tougher, um, I would argue, with, the pre- with Trump, uh, the president versus Trump, the candidate. There was such a prevailing sense at the end of, you know, September, October of 2016 that there was no way that Trump was going to win. And so, there was a sense amongst uh, candidates and and even you know anecdotally voters that I would talk to about like well Hillary Clinton will be president so I'd like to have someone to be a check on her power. And that's not an option that they had this go around. And they also, you know, I'll, I'll note that I think President Obama was somewhere around 43, 44 approval rating heading into the 2010 midterms. Right now, Trump has hovered anywhere from like 30, 38 to 40 and mm-hmm. hasn't gotten much higher than that. So we're we are at historic levels in presence and popularity. So it's it's not entirely surprising that they would uh, hold their cards a little close to the chest on how they would vote in 2020. But
3: is it reasons to having said all that to. Be somewhat skeptical of a blue wave. Sometimes I wonder if the overconfidence mm-hmm. um, is actually suggestive of, of not the opposite, but uh, maybe complacency or it becomes a lot easier to, for, for people to be complacent. In some ways, Hillary Clinton suffered because people assumed she it was a foregone conclusion that she'd be president and didn't turn up at the polls.
0: I by no means think that there is a a certain blue wave coming, and I think that uh, members would be careful to uh, both prepare for it but then not expect it either. Well,
3: Elena Schneider, thank you so much for joining us this uh, morning. Follow her great work at EC underscore Schneider and at at (laughs) politico.com. Anyway, we'll be back after this break, so stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. Good morning and welcome to the Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning, top of the hour. And uh, we have a great show with uh, a lot of great people. And that includes Elise Foley, uh, politics and immigration reporter at HuffPost. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Great to have you here. And uh, I believe you're a friend of Bill, which I guess I am uh, a friend of Sabrina. Yeah, I yeah. say a friend of <laughs> Sabrina. This, uh, which is the thing I've been trying to make happen. It hasn't happened in the same way, but I like uh, it. Yes, and of course our great uh, team is uh, still here: Ray Rogers and Bryn Malloy and Cyprian Bolding, um Peter Ogburn. Is in our thoughts. He's he's, uh, he's basking, hanging, in basking, in, basking in the sun rays somewhere.
6: In our thoughts sounds so sounds dramatic. Sounds, sounds a little bit, yeah.
3: I it sounds it's a little not dramatic. Bad. It's good. He's, he's, he's doing well. I'm, I'm just giving him a hard time because he's not here with me. But he, um, he is enjoying, hopefully, uh, this Friday uh, away from um, this early morning where we have a lot to break down. And that includes never-ending chatter around Trump and the FBI and James Comey. Uh, memos that were released overnight um, and I and we have a lot that I think I'd like to talk to you about at least that that gets us a little bit away from what we've just been discussing for a great part of the morning but James Comey is such a polarizing figure in our politics uh, yesterday he was uh, sitting down with Jake Tapper on CNN overnight the memos were released by the Justice Department those in which he memorializes conversations with the president and What do you make of this uh, book tour? uh, Do you feel like his objective is to um, really uphold the the integrity of the FBI and to shed light on some of these conversations that he's had with Trump and how they threaten that independence? Or is this really an effort to absolve himself because he is, of course, reviled by both sides?
6: (laughs) I mean, I I think that he it's hard to be in his head. Right. But I I think that he thinks that he's, you know, p- defending the institution, speaking out about Trump, speaking out about the things that he saw and people are interested to hear about it, but obviously one of his goals is also to sell some books, which he's doing a pretty good job at is my understanding, and yeah, kind of improve his reputation. He's very much framed himself as kind of the hero here, uh the man, you know, speaking out for the people against Trump and while he does have a lot of interesting things to say, I think that his motives there are are kind of mixed.
3: Yeah, he's just a he's just a an, a curious uh, person to try and um, talk about because we we've we've had a lot of conversation around how uh, the substance of his allegations uh, with respect to Trump are are very important, especially insofar as the ongoing uh, FBI inve- investigation is concerned. At the same time. He says he would still have served as as Trump's FBI director if you if, he if given the opportunity that you know he thinks that the institution is so much more important. He wouldn't say if Hillary, we would be better off if Hillary Clinton were president, which you kind of get because it invite a lot of backlash um, from those who say there's bias. But at the same time, he's saying Trump is morally unfit. So
6: yeah, I don't think it's necessarily uh, it paints him in a bad light to say that he would have still served under Trump. I I mean I think. To some degree, even critics of Trump would like people who are good in those jobs. And obviously, if there's an investigation into Trump, like that doesn't mean that he's a big Trump lover. Um, So I I think that that's that's one thing. But certainly his reputation. I mean, if you think about before everything that happened with Hillary Clinton, um, the Clinton campaign, and then now with the Trump campaign, he's made people on both sides uh, very unhappy with him. And uh, his loyalty clearly is to. The FBI to some degree, but also himself. Yeah. Maybe the American people as well.
3: I'll read real quick uh, his tweet one more time. So General Michael Flynn's life can be totally destroyed while shady James Comey can leak and lie and make lots of money from a third-rate book that should never have been written. Is that really the way in life in America is supposed to work? I don't think so.
2: Commentary The best clips from the show all in one place. YouTube.com/slash the Bill Press Show.
3: Well, Friday morning here at the Bill Press Show, of course, it's Sabrina Siddiqui and I'm filling in for Bill and Elise Foley. I uh, just joined us in studio. Um, you know, shifting gears from James Comey because I feel like we've all exhausted ourselves trying to parse no collusion uh, uh, no collusion yeah no collusion no collusion no collusion um trump uh, has been um he's been at mar-a-lago this week um he have hosted the japanese prime minister surely he took a lot of executive time um but yesterday uh he toured what was a navy facility and sort of return to the issue of immigration, um, talking about uh, drugs flowing into the country. We've heard that one before, um, and the need for the wall. Uh, we have some of what he had to say, so let's take a listen first.
5: Drugs are flowing into our country. We need border protection. We need the wall. We have to have the wall. The Democrats don't want to approve a wall because they think it's good politically, but it's not.
3: And he also discussed uh, sanctuary cities which is another favorite uh, target of his.
5: Looking at what's happening in California with sanctuary cities where the people are really uh, going the opposite way. They don't want sanctuary cities. And there's a little bit of a revolution going on in California.
6: So... Is there a revolution going on in California? (laughs) I mean, he's not altogether wrong. So, California has this law that uh, went into effect this year that limits their cooperation in the state with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And it's really not what a lot of conservatives paint it to be. Um, It's not really letting uh, people who are murderers out instead of giving them to ICE. There's all sorts of exceptions to the people that they hand over to ICE. so based on, um, you know, convictions and things like that. And so it's it's not what people say it is, but the way that they frame it is this, like, terrifying thing where San Francisco is purposefully letting somebody who just, um, you know, committed some atrocious crime back into the streets where they will do it again. And so... There are um, the Trump administration sued California over it, and there have been uh, various cities and counties around the state that have said that they want to join that lawsuit. So there is sort of a revolt um, from some parts of California. People think of California as being very blue, but it's not entirely. It's a very big state, and there are conservative parts of it, and uh, some of them have said that they want to join Trump in this.
3: Mm. Where does the administration's... uh fight stand to strip um federal funds uh from states that are were where they did have these um uh, decisions to not co- to limit their cooperation with uh, immigration authorities, stand. I know there's, it's, been, it's been through the courts, and right. uh, sometimes it's difficult for people to follow the starts and stops.
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been so many different things Trump has done that have been blocked in the courts, but there was another ruling yesterday against his Sanctuary Cities order and uh, the Justice Department's attempt to block these places from funds. The court ruled that um, it, this has already been blocked. The court ruled that the Justice Department is not allowed to put these sort of strings on this money. Congress didn't put immigration requirements on the money and that uh, Jeff Sessions can't just decide to do that of his own volition. Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, obviously, uh, has railed against Sanctuary City since he was a senator. It's been one of his big issues. And so he's really used um, a lot of his efforts uh, as attorney general to try to go after them. And the courts have said, no, that's uh, you can't, you can't do that.
3: And and I wanted to s- s- stay on track with immigration for a moment because the other thing he talked about, in addition to sanctuary cities, is the wall. And we, you know, we've heard about, of course, um, you know, tr- Trump's wall ever since the course of the campaign, and we began this year with what looked like potential um, negotiations around. Immigration reform, not comprehensive immigration reform like 2013, but a deal uh, at
6: least to protect dreamers. And, and what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, basically what happened is that I think the Trump administration kept mo- moving the goal- goalposts. So um, they originally said he said that he wanted the wall. And um, would give protection to DREAMers, uh, people who would be, if he had his way, losing their deferred action for childhood arrivals. That's been uh, blocked to some degree in the courts. Um, And it looked like there was potential for that. But what you have to remember is this is Trump and he has people like Stephen Miller, uh, former Sessions aide who's now a top White House policy advisor uh who know a little more about immigration than Trump you know to Trump just having a wall would fix the problem people who know more about immigration policy know that that's really not true a lot of the people who come to the US present themselves at the border and to border agents and say i'd like asylum so what do you do about those people um the Trump administration believes that a lot of those People, A lot of them are children, are liars slash future MS-13 gang members who are going to, you know, kill us all, whether they're five years old at the moment or not. Um, but there's uh, so the Trump administration basically started demanding all sorts of other stuff uh, in addition. And Democrats said no. So we're at this point now where Trump has gotten some money for fencing, but Democrats uh, don't want to give him money for his wall. Republicans, a lot of them aren't dying to give him a ton of money for his wall either, but they are doing some level of construction, and it's just kind of this uh, f- f- farce, I think, really, where everybody just refers to a fence now as a wall. Mm-hmm. I was going well, to ask is a fence. I mean, mm-hmm. a, a lot of it, right? right? So Democrats voted before for a fence at the border. There is right. a fence at the border already. Now we're all just um, accepting calling the fence a wall, which whatever, it doesn't really matter. Right. But uh, it, it so Democrats don't want to give Trump what he wants. And right now, you know, they're repairing their fence. They're calling it a wall. They're building a little bit more. Right. Um, in fact, the omnibus uh, spending
3: bill that was uh, passed by Congress and signed by the president before Easter recess. Now, that included well, more than a billion dollars in border security, and that included uh, repairing existing fencing and the construction of some new fencing. But yeah. but I think um, the question is, of course, uh, what will ultimately satisfy the president, who still wants his wall. Uh, yeah, I mean,
6: if he would just... Call they're already calling I think a lot of Republicans, because they know this are just calling a fence a wall. If the Trump administration would just also fully go on board and do that, which they do to for the most part, if Trump would just do that, then he could say, like, look, I won, I'm getting my wall. Um, he does to some degree. I my theory is that they're gonna end up building just like a small section of concrete and be like, see, some of it is wall; it's not all fence. But <laughs> in its executive order, even I mean, it said or physical barrier. Physical barrier. Yeah. So they they've left themselves some room, and I think that they'll build some more and uh, maybe call it a day. But left out
3: of all this were dreamers, um, and I think it's been, it'd be helpful if you can kind of break down where they stand because in some Republicans, in some way, where they 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 took cover in the court ruling um, that. That I suppose it didn't it, it the, the program, DACA has still effectively been phased out, but there's so what did the court so the court said that they have to still renew applications or process? Yeah, renewals. exactly.
6: So everybody who has it is able to renew and continue to have it. Um, you know, there there are reasons that people might be rejected, so people still might lose it. Um, but for the most part, the people who had it before are still protected. What that leaves out is all of the people who um, didn't have it, hadn't applied for it, and then also the people who um, weren't able – or weren't eligible for the program when it first – When it first came out. So say if you were 14, then you wouldn't have been old enough to apply for the program. Now you're 15 and you theoretically would have been old enough, but now you can't. So there's all sorts of people, um, you know, maybe who are older, too old to apply for the program who Democrats want to protect. There's lots of people who are in this situation who are you can make the same arguments, came to the U.S. through no fault of their own um, as kids and aren't protected so they you know it it fixes the problem in the courts for some people but not for all and there's still this level of uncertainty i think that for democrats it uh eventually got to the point since it was blocked in the courts where why make a deal with republicans where they would probably have to give away certain things that they don't want to give up and when they have a chance potentially to get more power in this next election and make a better deal. So mm. there's really no incentive for Democrats uh, to do anything at this point, and there's mm. no incentive for Republicans mm. who even say they want to do something to actually do it because they can just stand behind the court, right?
3: And then it, 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 they also want to avert these challenges from the right, where there's still this view that any deal on DACA is so-called amnesty. The, effectively, the prospects of a deal up until the midterms seem to be dead. I think so. Um, I'd be shocked. And have immigration advocates um, accepted this uh, in part? Have they accepted the thinking among Democrats? Because there was a lot of backlash uh, initially uh, toward Democrats because um, they weren't necessarily holding the line. Um, Now, there were after the holidays when Democrats did not force the shutdown of the government. That was probably when criticism was. At its highest among immigration advocates who thought that they would have, at that time, uh, forced a shutdown with a, a deal. But, and then if we you did have these short lived shutdowns that were in part driven by DACA as well as other issues, um, do immigration advocates still
6: feel like they've been let down or? Yeah, it- I think so. I mean, Democrats spent last year saying that they were going to do it by the end of the year. It's very important to do it by the end of the year. They've said that over and over and over. And then they didn't. And now it hasn't happened. And so uh, I think immigration advocates, um, you know, to speak broadly, feel that Democrats let them down by not forcing the issue when they had the chance. I think that for the most part, immigration advocates also realize that right now they don't have a those leverage points mm-hmm. that they had at that time, that's the reason that they wanted to tie it to government funding is because they had leverage, Democrats had leverage there. So I think that, you know, immigration advocates are know about politics and they see that there's not really a leverage point right now. That doesn't mean that they think that it's OK or appropriate for Democrats to just give up on it, especially when a lot of Democrats will be running on being great champions of immigrants, mm. most likely. Um, So I I think that immigration advocates, especially the dreamers themselves, are pretty sick of being used as a campaign issue and Mm -hmm. not actually getting any help from Democrats.
3: Switching gears a little bit, um, when Elena was here earlier in the show, we were talking about uh, another part of midterm elections, which is the wave of Republican retirements and uh, a lot of the um, criticism that Republicans have uh, received for trying to thread this needle when it comes to Trump. Uh, and one of those people who I think is, some might call the face of, of, of that strategy is Paul Ryan, um, House Speaker, who, of course, announced uh, this month that he would not seek re-election, um, which was a big blow to the Republican Party insofar as he's a prolific fundraiser, um, once, has, once regarded as one of their rising stars. Uh, and he's now that he's uh, opening up a little bit more about his retirement. One thing that's a little striking is he's still not really willing to criticize the president, and nor is he, according to PC, willing to accept that he has in some ways enabled Trump.
6: Yeah. So uh, there were a lot of pieces when he announced his retirement, kind of lauding him and talking about how he has this different vision than the president, and um, he's really framed himself as this person who is open to trade and to immigrants to a certain degree and, you know, doesn't share the president's views on uh, things like Muslims, has criticized various aspects. But then a lot of people also were quick to point out that, you know, congrats, to, that's nice if Paul Ryan has nice things to say uh, sometimes, but he hasn't actually done all that much necessarily to actually stop Trump from these various things and he's kind of gone along with things he's helped pass the president's agenda which you know to some degree I don't think he deserves criticism for because the president's agenda is his agenda as well so you know Mm -hmm. you don't expect Paul Ryan to back off of tax reform because he doesn't like Trump but the amount that he's said that oh he you know oh his Trump's vision has not won out my vision is still you know one in the party and um, that he did not enable, you know, rejecting this idea that he enabled Trump, I think is about protecting his own legacy and his view of himself. And it's probably hard to look at it and say, all right, this other guy who's, you know, the way he talks about things and is completely the opposite of me, his way appears to be more popular at this moment. And now he's got to go and Trump's going still going to be there.
3: Right? Yeah, I mean, he's tried to suggest that his retirement has nothing to do with Trump but one would have to imagine that um, if Trump had not been president if this had been a president Jeb Bush or President Marco Rubio or President even Ted Cruz perhaps that Paul Ryan maybe wouldn't have thrown in the
6: towel um, yeah or President Hillary Clinton or President Hillary Clinton and you know maybe stick around and run for president He's he said that he wants to be there with his kids his kids are getting older um, and that he wants to be around with them but I mean that's he's he claimed when he took the speaker job that he was going to make sure he had time for his family. I'm sure that that's been difficult. But at right. the same time, he's a politician. I think that if he thought that he had a good you know, political career ahead of him right. by staying, he would have stayed.
3: There's the there's the obvious uh, piece here where when you're staring down the barrel at potentially being in the minority or at best having a very slim majority you know you're not going to be able to get anything done. And it's a pretty, you ask Nancy Pelosi, it's a pretty um, uh, sorry place to be when you have no influence and uh, there's no real political upside to sticking around. And so as much as he, of course, would not say that publicly, I think a lot of people know privately um, that that had to figure into it. And you mentioned uh, him feeling that his ideas had ultimately won. In fact... Chuck Todd on Meet the Press said uh, Charlie Sykes, of course, prominent Wisconsin radio host, who's conservative, a part of Never Trump movement, wrote, when people write the history of this era, it will be the triumph of Trumpism over Ryanism. And that's got to be a bitter pill to swallow. And Paul Ryan said, I just don't see it like that.
6: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and then he went on to kind of list the various accomplishments that he has had. Um, And, you know, he did get his tax reform. Yeah. Through. That was like one I was of the various goals.
3: that might be the one. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I guess they dereg- dereg- uh, deregulated a lot of um, yeah. what you saw from the Obama administration, um, for better or for worse. That, and that's- maybe
6: there would have been some things that Paul Ryan would have disagreed with that could have happened if he wasn't there. Uh, who knows? But for the most part, clearly the Republican voters have said that what they want is a person like Trump. Versus a person like Paul Ryan has been on the ticket before and they didn't win. so, I I mean, I think that it's it would be hard to say that Trumpism is not going to be what we remember uh, when we look back in history about this time um, versus Ryan's view of the world. Mm. I also want um, another
3: happier event on Capitol Hill, which was a Terry Duckworth. Um, known already to have broken down a, a great deal of barriers, yesterday brought her baby to the Senate floor for a vote to her newborn. This is after the Senate had to, uh, they voted, uh, I think unanimously, they did vote unanimously to allow children under the age of one onto the floor. This is something that Duckworth had pushed for, uh, cause she is the first sitting Senator to give birth, um... And the internet basically freaked out <laughs> Duckworth and the baby, um, but there was some really interesting comments from uh, some of Tammy Duckworth's male colleagues. Where although they supported this resolution, um, you had I think it was Orrin Hatch say, "What if there were ten babies on the Senate floor?" And privately, some of them were worried, uh, "What if she has to feed?" What is like, that? Yeah, get like?
6: over then get over it. Like <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Right, you're a mom a new mom, a relatively new mom.
4: I am a relatively new mom and I have the same reaction. Get over it. I mean, okay, big deal. First of all, you can't see anything. Second of all, it's a baby. They sleep most of the time until yeah. they're like six months old.
6: Yeah, I mean, odds are like most people don't take their babies to work in any field. Yeah. So the idea that even if there were in you know my my dream future where young women are uh (laughs) represented in the senate uh odds are there are not going to be 10 who have babies at the same time and there probably aren't going to be 10 who bring their babies to the floor even if there were so what all they do is they go on the floor and they kind of chit chat with each other and they hold their thumb up or down and vote (laughs) uh who who cares um my favorite quote personally was uh Jim Inhofe had a quote about how, well, Dick Durbin was saying, who's a Democrat, was saying something about how it would be great if we had diaper bags here next to these, you know, old spittoons that they have on the Senate floor. People might not know this, but they have these like ancient uh, things for spitting back from like way back when. And. Inhofe said something about how actually people don't use diaper bags anymore because people use disposable diapers. And I just, that made me laugh because it was like, he doesn't know what a diaper bag is. I know he's old and he doesn't have babies, but I, I don't know. I feel, it just made me laugh. I think Duckworth
4: also hit back with essentially like, great, um, that means that we'll have some fresh blood in the Senate at least.
3: Yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, Senator Pat Roberts, uh, Republican from Kansas, uh, was wondering why she can't just, uh, you know, bring the baby to the cloakroom. And then people have to point out, well, the cloakroom is not wheelchair accessible. Mm-hmm. And Tammy Duckworth, an Iraq War veteran, lost both of her legs in the war. So.
6: Which is crazy. Make the cloak. First, the cloakroom <laughs> should be wheelchair accessible.
3: Right. It should be wheelchair accessible. But and she then... also shouldn't have to hide herself in it.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she is a senator. She should be able to go onto the floor they go they do more than just vote you know i i know that i kind of was dismissing what they do on the floor a minute ago but they yeah. actually do have discussions they go up and give speeches i doubt she would bring her baby to give a speech right. but maybe she would to make a point right you know and the senate um senators who were men really pushed back when there started to be more women in the senate and sorry women make up half the population there um are going to be more and more women i think joining the senate and kudos to her because this is
3: something that um you know she really pushed for and i know amy klobuchar has talked about how there have been discussions in the past about amending some of the rules taking into account that there are more women and there are young there are younger women who have um therefore young kids who are now serving in office and It's a disadvantage. It's a disincentive to them to run for office if if it's not going to be accommodating uh, for the very real needs that they
6: might have. One Uh, thing that I appreciated, too, just to jump in, is that um, they didn't just make it about Duckworth. They could have, you know, some people talked about just doing an exception for her or even just about women. They said parents with newborns. And so in theory, maybe if we're in some future where a man wants to bring his newborn on the floor,
3: he can do it, too. Right. I mean, it's not specific. It's not it's not specific to women. It was it's more just a, an example of why so many of them often feel like politics is not a viable career and it's already so male dominated. And then on top of it, you have people raise these complaints about, well, what if she's going to breastfeed and what does that look like? And uh, it, it just reinforces that the Senate is full of a bunch of old people.
7: <laughs> um,
3: Senator Marco Rubio said, why would I object to it? We have plenty of babies on the floor.
6: So yeah, some- the, quotes, <laughs> the quotes from some of the younger men like Rubio and Tom Cotton were a lot more You could see the difference in the generations, I yes, think. Tom Cotton from is from people 40, who have younger kids. And yes,
3: uh Rubio's 46 and has four kids and you know, some of these people at least yeah, they 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 get what it's like. I mean, Paul Ryan, we were just talking about someone who at least has talked about work-life balance as a man. Um so that there there is a generational Gap, um, but it was it was really it was really great to see her role in with the baby and the mm-hmm. and the the cheers that erupted and the the senators going a gaga over over this baby on the floor. Um,
6: who doesn't like babies?
3: Who doesn't well, some people <laughs>
4: <laughs> apparently more than we would like to? <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Trump babies don't like Trump we've seen Plenty of photographic <laughs> evidence of that Um uh, We um I'm excited Because we also have uh Pamela Levy who's gonna Join us uh shortly In uh, studio so We'll we'll break down a lot more with her As well and Elise Foley is uh Going to stick around and Uh we'll take a quick break over here Um make sure you follow Elise On twitter at least Foley and read her work at halfpost.com but you're not going Anywhere so we'll have um a lot more to chat about, and we'll be back with you after this break. Stay tuned to The Bill Press Show.
2: Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show.
3: Good morning and welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning. Uh, Elise Foley, of course, has been with us uh, in studio from HuffPost. And joining us now is Pamela Levy, politics reporter at Mother Jones, a friend of mine, friend of the show. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today?
7: I'm great. How yeah, are you?
3: I'm good. I'm good. We, uh, we've been um, talking about all of the chaos uh, <laughs> that's capped off yet another week in... Uh, Trump's Washington, no shortage, no shortage on. Uh, I always like to save the the best for last, so we've got our whole trio here. Um, and I, you know, one thing that we haven't touched about, and Elise and I are talking about James Comey and this escalating feud between uh, Trump and the FBI um, and the Russia investigation, how it fits into into that. But another investigation uh, where there may down the road be some overlap, but at least for now, uh, they are separate. Is that into Michael Cohen, uh, the president's longtime attorney, who, of course, made uh, the six-figure payment hush money to Stormy Daniels, uh, who says she had an affair with uh, the president, one of many women who have who have said so, um, one of at least two women who have been paid money to stay silent. Um, and there's now a criminal investigation into Cohen for not just the hush money, but also... You know, the, these business dealings he had, a taxi medallion business in New York. And uh, how much trouble is
7: he in, Pema? <laughs> uh, from what I can tell, a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, sort of the worst thing that happened to the people in Trump's orbit is that Trump won. Because otherwise, people like Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen would have just continued to do They're sort of shady businesses and without scrutiny. But now that Trump is president, there's a lot of scrutiny on the people around him. And it turns out that they were, you know, doing money laundering, um, you know, allegedly in terms of uh, Paul Manafort. And then, you know, we're now discovering all the stuff that Michael Cohen was up to. Um, And I definitely think that it seems, you know, from what I've heard, he was not, you know, some astute legal mind. He was a fixer. Mm. Um, He had his hand in a lot of different businesses um, the taxi medallion one is fascinating and kind of funny to everyone outside of New York to sort of like piece together that part of it, uh, I think. But, you know, there's a lot of money in that, it turns out. Um, you know, the stuff with Stormy Daniels, you know, the the way in which he, you know, it seems like negotiated a lot of these um, NDA uh, deals potentially. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot there. And then, of course, the question is, you know, does he take a plea? Does he go to jail or does this you know, become leverage for Robert Mueller uh, later on. Certainly the question
3: is whether or not uh, Michael Cohen might flip. Um, now, Mueller has already been able to get a number of people who were indicted in the separate investigation um, into Russian meddling in the election, potential clues between the Trump campaign and Moscow, uh, to cooperate with uh, the special counsel. Uh, Michael Cohen is uh, someone who once said that he would take A bullet for the president. Um, He, I'm the guy who would take a bullet for the
6: president. He's been a very loyal uh, person to Trump for a very long time, and like Pema said, has been kind of his fixer versus what we normally think of a lawyer doing, and you know, defending him and or helping with business deals or something. I mean, he's been, you know, helping pay off various people for various He's things. He's the off-the-books guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> we exactly. We don't know how many people. I mean, we no. only
3: know about Stormy Daniels um, in terms of an, a payment that he himself facilitated. Uh, Karen McDougall was uh, paid by um, AMI, the parent company of he National Enquirer. Con- but he was
7: consulted on that, is my consulted. understanding. He, he was, or he was, there are emails contemporaneously that would suggest uh, that he was consulted on that one as well. Um. But the, the, the therein lies the question of,
3: you know, he's very loyal, as as Elise said. He hasn't been charged yet with a crime. He is under criminal investigation. But if he is charged with a crime, given the severity of uh, some of uh, what they're looking into and everything from bank fraud to campaign uh, finance violation to uh, money laundering to perhaps more, um, if someone is staring down the barrel at... Five years, 10 years, maybe more in prison. You still going
7: to take a bullet for the president? I think it's a great question. And I mean, it's a great test for someone like Michael Cohen, who has, you know, made it made, you know, he very much his own perception of himself is very much tied up with Donald Trump. Like he worshipped Donald Trump. He was buying apartments in Trump Tower. Trump took note of him, pulled him into his inner circle, elevated him. I mean, his sort of view of like. What's the coolest, most powerful guy was like always Donald Trump, um, and so I think you know it, it's a big test for him, um, and I think you know one of the questions too is whether or not he thinks the president will have his back, whether or not the president you know potentially could try and pardon him, um, you know he has you have to be convict first, but um, <laughs> you know there's I think that there are some. You know, questions and in in terms of him, you know, what he's getting from the president and from, you know, his lawyers in terms of whether or not Trump is sort of starting to turn on him. Because if Trump ever, you know, I don't know, if Trump starts to like look like he's turning on Cohen or sort of making him the fall guy, then I think that sort of triggers the like, mm. oh, the, the, the two way street of this loyalty situation is crumbling.
3: And that's why it's interesting that in New York, because this is uh, the investigation of Michael Cohen. Um, is being overseen by uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, and, and they have, they have been moving in New York to try and limit um, the president's authority to issue pardon um, to issue pardons. Um, you know, in part because I think they are concerned that there is this wink wink happening between the president, especially with the pardon of Scooter Libby, Dick Cheney's former chief of staff. Uh, you know, if you just hang in there, and and I've got I've got your back.
6: Yeah, I mean, pardon power was not, I, I assume, when people, when they created it, meant to let you um, let your buddies off the hook for committing crimes. Yeah. You know, it was supposed to be about looking, finding various uh, examples of miscarriages of justice and right. correcting those. It was not about, you know, telling your not to tell on you. Um, right. And point. if they do, then you'll help them out. I don't think they anticipated that
3: it would be the, president's and the president and his associates who would all be yeah. under investigation and therefore uh, perhaps uh, the subject of the uh, the pardon. Uh, but it's also interesting that the Trump, um, and maybe perhaps why, uh, you know, the, the Trump um, White House and and his legal team seem much more concerned with the investigation into Cohen, than than frankly they have been, um, many, uh, with many of the other developments in uh, Robert Mueller's inquiry into Russian interference in the election.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think so. What I've heard, you know, what w- what I understand about the the Trump organization is that. You know, this was not a publicly traded company with a bunch of auditors coming you know, coming in and like being accountable to shareholders. I mean, this was like a really small group of people in a room making decisions and then putting those in email. And they were sometimes, uh, you know, they fudged with the law. I mean, there are emails of, like, Ivanka Trump emailing her brother being like, oh, we just lied about how, you know, the value of this condo, like, or how many units we've sold. Like, hope no one finds out. (laughs) So, like, you know, I mean, this is really getting at his family. I mean, you know, I think that when you look at the, you know, the Russia collusion investigation, you know, I think everyone wonders, you know, you know, Paul Manafort, you know, probably in, in touch with some folks, you know, Michael Flynn, you know, potentially in touch with some folks, George Papadopoulos, sure. The president, you know that that's that's unclear, um, but you know this is this is his organization. This right. is his family. This is you know Jared. This is Ivanka. This is Don and Eric and him directly. And, right, right. <laughs> Who knows what
3: Michael Cohen has has fixed for fixed for him?
7: Right. Um, I will say, and this is you know my understanding is that the the acting U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York has actually recused himself, mm. um, which uh, is. Uh, I think was definitely a good idea because now that Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani has joined the president's team and the acting u s attorney in in that district in New York was a former uh legal partner of Rudy Giuliani <laughs> so a tangled it's really, web here it's really a it's really a small circle of of folks that are um that you know that Trump is relying on these days
3: uh, one thing that um is also interesting about the way in which um the raid was carried out is I, I think Appropriately carried out by the, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in part because Robert Mueller's jurisdiction is not these payments that Michael Cohen has made. Um, his is to investigate Russian meddling in the U.S. election and potential collusion, collusion between the Trump campaign and Moscow, but the way it works is insofar as all these documents are concerned, if the U.S. Attorney's Office were to come by documents that are related to the investigation into Russian interference, then they can refer those back the special counsel's office. So Robert Mueller could ultimately still benefit in the same way without incurring um, what what may have been political backlash if if his office was directly behind um, this raid. But there could potentially be uh, some overlap down the road. I mean, Cohen is someone who was involved at least in um, a payment uh, by a Ukrainian oligarch uh, that was made, facilitated through the Trump organization. And there has been some Engagement that he has had, so that will also be an interesting piece is to see where there might be potential overlap down the uh, road. Um, and and on the same topic, uh, Elise and I were talking about Comey and his PR tour, but slightly different um, track with respect to that are the there is the release of these memos mm-hmm. by the Justice Department. Um, and this was in part because Republican investigators on Capitol Hill were pushing for the release of right, and these they leaked them. I mean, memos. I mean,
7: they they you know the Justice Department sent them to Congress, and then they appeared in the press. So I, I imagine this is um, yeah, this is you know so much talk of about
6: how leaking is terrible, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right? As it turns out, everybody <laughs> likes to do it if they think it's going to benefit them.
3: Exactly. And so, in what ways do you think this sets a precedent, though? Because, um, I mean. Obviously, there are politi- there are partisan motivations at play uh, for getting these memos out to the public. Um, and on the one hand, there's been this big push that Republicans are trying to say, well, we agree Robert Mueller should be able to car- carry out a, th- an, a thorough investigation and act independently. But then you have Congress trying to exert its influence by getting these memos out to the public when the investigation is still ongoing, and these memos are quite clearly a big part of that investigation.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think we've actually seen... You know, Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill, you know, using the ability to like release information either by leaking it to the press or just, you know, someone unilaterally making a decision to, you know, release a transcript of, um, you know, an interview, for example. Uh, And they've been just doing this back and forth, sort of trying to get an upper hand. And, you know, one side will say, okay, we're going to release, you know, excerpts of this interview from, you know, with one person and that'll like, you know, bolster our narrative. And the other side will say, well, I'm going to, you know, release this. And so it is pretty ironic that that is going on at the same time that you know Trump and and people of the Justice Department are freaking out about leaks and you know as we saw in these memos talking about throwing reporters in jail to find the leakers um, and and there's a lot of it going on on Capitol Hill.
6: Well, what's interesting too with the Comey memos is that I think Democrats see them as a um, you know some contemporaneous notes about bad things that Trump was saying and evidence that Trump is bad. Republicans see them as evidence that Comey is bad. (laughs) So it's kind of everybody is
7: seemingly a little bit enjoying these uh, memos, released, things, that it helps their side. Right. The thing I would say about the congressional investigation, too, is that it started out as, you know, the FBI has an investigation and then the uh, relevant committees in Congress, you know, this is also their jurisdiction, so they're also going to launch investigations. And what's happened in in the House <laughs> Intelligence Committee um, under Republicans is that instead of actually doing that investigation, in fact, they've officially wrapped it up, right, but instead of, like, doing their own interviews, collecting their own set of facts, you know, you know, talking to witnesses, talking to people involved, compiling their own report, they've instead... You know, shut that down very quickly and then turn to themselves to the Justice Department. So they're requesting all these documents from the Justice Department because they're now basically investigating the Justice Department and the FBI. So, like, they're, you know, the, the, the DOJ and the FBI are carrying on their investigation. I mean, and then, you know, the Republicans in the House are in turn investigating them. Um, you know, in, in short order after, you know, DOJ or FBI does something, then they request it over on the Hill um, as part of, you know, what what is their investigation of everything that the FBI is doing. So they're sort of being second-guessed um, and then having what they're doing be leaked often, um, you know, pretty quickly after they're doing it themselves.
3: And one of the um, pieces uh, that Comey wrote about in terms of the conversations that he mem- memorialized uh, were was over um, Trump allegedly uh, cavorting around with prostitutes in Moscow, uh, our president of the United States, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, But this is something the president was very fixated. What's interesting is the president is the one who was bringing this up. Now, what we knew before, um, based on the interviews that Comey did around the book, was that uh, Trump had asked him, that was one of the big um, initial news lines out of of the the book and, and his subsequent interviews, that Trump had asked him to investigate this alleged tape um of, of, of salacious claims that I just don't even wish to repeat at, at this point in time but everyone knows what we, I'm talking we all know about, what we're talking about. <laughs> everyone knows what we're talking about and it's a little bit <laughs> odd to investigate a, a tape that used that does, about for some, that allegedly documents something that you say didn't happen but that's a whole separate um conversation what, what, what these what these memos say is the president said the hookers thing is nonsense but that Putin told him we have some of the most beautiful hookers in the world <laughs> Okay. He said, "Mr. Trump did not specify when this conversation with Mr. Putin took place."
7: Yeah, that was actually like, was actually like that second part of what you just said, like the part about like, if 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 A is true, if Putin did yeah. tell him this, then like B is like when. Yeah, <laughs> right. And like basically.
3: And doesn't that mean that there's more suggestion that maybe something did happen? Would like, he tell you this when there was a when they were facilitating possibly like some sort of? Right, like I mean my it understanding- sounds like something
6: Trump
7: might say about America <laughs> yeah <laughs> no we we have <laughs> the, the best beautiful, the best whatever the best it is beautiful. I mean my understanding is that or you know I think the general understanding is that Trump has had one conversation you know like phone com- well you know at that point you know when that when that conversation he had with Comey he had only that we know have had one conversation with Putin and so people are sitting around being like when you talk to Putin, like right after the election <laughs> or right after the inauguration, did he just like bring that up? Yeah, like <laughs> so there's a lot of questions with that comment. And, and to connect the dots, um, no one has been able to
3: substantiate the claims, um, the these the specific salacious claims about Trump and uh, prostitutes that were in that uh, Steele dossier. But we were talking about Michael Cohen. We were talking about these um, secret payments, uh, or the secret payment that was made to Stormy Daniels, and there's been um, there's been alle- or suggestions that Michael Cohen has potentially paid off more women. That that one of the concerns for the campaign was there are going to be a lot of people who are going to come forward um, with allegations against this president. And one of the point of the the the, the Steele dossier when when they were talking about this question of whether or not the president engaged with prostitutes was not so much that within of itself, but that he is subject to blackmail. That there are um, people, and there is, a, and the Russian government, there are governments potentially who are in possession of incriminating um, information about this president that they could then use to exert influence over him um, and uh, to as a form of blackmail. And so, when you look at hush money that was paid to a uh, an actress who was willing to come forward and speak about her own affair. Some people might look at that as an example of where the president would have been subject to blackmail. I mean, they, she didn't blackmail them, but the, their response was to actually get out ahead and say, We'll pay you for your silence. So, there, so sometimes I think we talk about these things in isolation, but in fact, there are these little dots that actually do align yeah. uh, to tell you, to, to give you a bigger picture of, of how this uh, president and his allies have have acted to suppress a lot of this damaging information from reaching the public.
6: I think one thing that's interesting, though, is that they now that information is out. Stormy Daniels is out talking about it and it hasn't hurt Trump with evangelical voters. So it's like at a certain point, would it would anything even be good blackmail material on Trump if Trump has had all this stuff come out about him and a lot of voters don't seem to care? I mean, I think there are a lot of voters who do care. But he's managed this idea that um people will turn on Trump once they see that he's not this great uh, beacon of moral character <laughs> um, who's loyal to his wife and a great family man. Um, I think has proven to not really be true at least for certain voters.
3: It was interesting that he was telling Comey to investigate um the tape because if there was even like a one percent chance that it existed, he was trying to essentially. Pacify Melania, but he was going to get held from Melania if uh, if, if like if, if, if there isn't some sort of resolution here. It was actually the first time I've heard Trump it, it suggest that he's scared of his wife,
6: <laughs> uh, well, and, and that he you know that that does show that there was something that he was worried about getting out.
3: Right, there was something that he was worried about. That's what Comey said in the interviews. You can't say that you can only you can't say categorically that this didn't happen. You know, a ninety nine percent chance is one thing, but you know, you can't say with 100% certainty that this doesn't exist.
6: Well, I think that, if I'm remembering correctly, that yeah. he was saying that if there is a 1% chance that Melania, like if Melania thinks that there's okay. a 1% chance it exists, yeah, um, you know, he's maintained that it definitely doesn't, right, but right. that he doesn't want his wife to think that right. there might be, and it, it is kind of a weird thing.
7: It's like, uh, would I would think never a, right. think that there <laughs> was a chance that anyone I know.
3: Why <laughs> does she think there's even a 1% chance
7: I think the thing about that is like, you know, I guess I guess Trump said that you know a year ago or so now, but I, I mean, given everything that's been happening, I think that that's you know the least of his troubles with Melania at the moment. Yeah, um, I mean, I think Stormy Daniels is much And I can Daniels see why she might think that there is a one percent chance.
3: <laughs> right, and then, yeah. if anything, it 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 underscores that perhaps in the minds of voters, it doesn't necessarily change the public opinion. While well, certainly those people who are supporting him. Have proven time and again that no matter what this seems to be with him, but the legal ramifications are what are so striking. Where putting aside Russia for a second, this a lot of a lot of these allegations, these are the ones that could well be uh, what proved to be uh, very damaging for for this presidency, um, and and have a lot more repercussions. In so far as as you said earlier, Pamela, with the collusion, it's difficult to establish intent to urge. To, to put a direct line to the president but it'll be, it will be it may well be a lot easier to establish a direct line to the president when it comes to uh, suppressing a lot of uh, this damaging information from getting out and, and paying off these women
7: yeah definitely definitely i mean you know i i think when i think about like trump and russia you know I think more even about his most recent actions, right? I mean, someone who got upset when we expelled, um, you know, 60 mm-hmm. diplomats, someone who, you know, you know, basically un- undid the like work of his, his aides um, when it comes to Russian sanctions, you know, someone who's obsessed with being, um, you know, friends with Putin and being well-regarded by Putin. And, like, whether or not there's something—whether or not all of that behavior— it, it sounds like the behavior of someone who has something hanging over his head— or someone who's just obsessed with being friends with Putin because he really likes the guy, mm-hmm. um, you know. But either way, you know, that is like a just—it's dis- a disturbing pattern, and um, you know, and it, and it has repercussions for, for, for you know, Russia's ability to do what it does on the on the world stage. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point you raise too, because sometimes people forget about the uh, policy
3: component, where you know, it's one thing with the investigation, with all these context that we know existed between uh, the Trump campaign and Moscow but the um, dramatic shift in U.S. posture toward Russia under this administration now we don't know if there was quid pro quo we can't yet say like was this because they were able to successfully exert influence on the administration but it is telling that first he he took a month and a half more than um, he or he was with a month and a half delay that he enforced the sanctions that Congress had passed against Russia last year then he was upset over, as you said, the expulsion of these diplomats. Uh, then he on, he contradicted Nikki Haley, who had suggested more sanctions were coming for Russia's support for uh, the Syrian regime and its chemical weapons program. Um, he hasn't taken seriously Russian interference in the election, which in terms of preventing it from happening again, his own intelligence chiefs have testified that they're not doing enough to prevent this from happening again, and that they're already trying to use similar tactics in the midterms. Um, so 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 there is certainly a pattern of his own behavior Um marrying someone who, again, we don't know why, but but has uh, some some real unanswered questions when it comes to Russia and Nikki Haley. Actually, I want to talk about her for a second. And um, this rift between her and the White House With all due respect, I don't get confused, was the quote, I guess, that was heard around the world. (laughs) But she's been a very interesting person to watch. It's like she, if someone said, I think correctly, Mickey Haley and Mike Pence seem to always look like they are running for president.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think she seemed very concerned this whole time of protecting her reputation and keeping it a little bit separate from the Trump administration. And kind of seeming, I mean, she's supposed to be speaking for the U.S., but she kind of seems to be trying to speak for the U.S. separate from speaking for Trump,
7: which is interesting to watch. I I definitely agree. I mean, it's, on the one hand, I mean, she has a tricky, there's a tricky in in this specific situation, right, where she tells the world something, and the White House walks it back and says, no, you are confused. Like, that's a really difficult position for her, um, because on the the one hand, you want to stand up for yourself, on the one hand, you have a president who really doesn't like it when people, you know, contradict him or you know, um, insinuate that any you know if anything untoward has happened, it's on him. And then lastly, for her to be effective at her job, mm. people need to take her seriously. If people think that she's out of the loop or that she's, you know, befuddled, then, you know, that makes her job um, as a diplomat at the United Nations really difficult. So mm. I think it's also important for her in, in you know, if she's going to do her job well and, you know, be respected, um, to make it very clear that this was not on her. <laughs> right. And, it's uh, you know, it's part of why Mike Pompeo, if he's ultimately
3: confirmed, um, now it's looking like he, he might not receive a positive recommendation from the Senate Formulations Committee, but looks like his chances of getting confirmed by senate still stand with heidi heitkamp saying she would vote for him but how effective is any secretary of state going to be in their job when you know that there will be a tweet that might undermine what you said less than 24 hours after you said it uh pema levy elise foley thank you so much for joining us thanks to the whole bill press team um for their help as usual sabrina sadiki signing off have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week on The Bill Press Show.
2: This
1: is The Bill Press Show. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Gig Speeds, powered by fiber